Good morning. I'm Bill Mims. I'm honored to be an elder here. Some of you may recall that on holiday weekends, we often would see Rick Hutton's smiling young face in this pulpit. In fact, he would introduce himself that way. Hi, I'm Rick Hutton. I'm the pastor who preaches on holidays. (laughs) Well, Rick has aged. He's become quite a good preacher, too. So now, who do you get for this holiday? Me. A lawyer and a judge. That is a significant step backwards. I am not a good preacher. I'm a nervous speaker who clutches the podium and reads from a word-for-word text. I once gave a speech And afterwards, someone came up and said, there were two problems. The first was that I wandered away from my text. Second was that I returned to it. (laughs) But judges look for precedents. Precedents are examples in the law books that provide clear guidance. And indeed, there is a precedent for my sermon. It's in the 22nd chapter of Numbers, the story of Balaam and his talking donkey. Verse 28 says, the Lord opened the donkey's mouth to speak. So I submit that if the Lord can speak through a donkey in the Old Testament, he can speak through me today. But let's all pray that that happens. (laughs) Heavenly Father, source of all wisdom. Please guide my words so we all may learn from your law. Then transform us by your spirit so we may share your grace with all our neighbors. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our summer series is called Among American Gods. We are examining the Ten Commandments and how they confront the idols of American life. One way to understand them is as God's answer to a disordered world. God's answer is to call us back to being his covenant people, living his covenant life. Now last week, Derek helped us to examine the second commandment, which relates to idolatry. He quoted from Martin Luther... Whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God, your functional Savior. He encouraged us to avoid idolatry because idols always lead to our diminishment and idols try to rob us of our covenant blessing. Today we will examine the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord in vain, For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, when I was younger, this seemed like a pretty easy commandment to keep. If I didn't curse or joke using the name of God or Jesus, I was pretty much home free. But there's a lot more in those 23 words. Here is a good basic summary from my study Bible. 
Taking the Lord's name in vain refers primarily to someone taking a deceptive oath in which the person is being, excuse me, taking a deceptive oath in God's name or invoking God's name to sanction an act in which the person is being dishonest. It also bans using God's name in magic or irreverently or disrespectfully. So that's at the first level, but it goes deeper. The Lord revealed his name to Moses, and he has continued to identify himself in connection with his acts on Israel's behalf. Yahweh is warning against using his name disconnected from his person, presence, and power. Disconnected from his person, presence, and power. So let's drill down on two important points from that summary. You were expecting a three-part sermon, weren't you? (laughs) Three-part sermons are for preachers. With a lawyer, you're lucky to get two. Okay, two parts. First, God's names reflect God's character. Second, in the context of this sermon series, many of us are subtly tempted to use God's name in the political arena, disconnected from his person, presence, and power. So first, God's names reflect God's character. God has more than two dozen names in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. Each one reflects a beautiful facet of God's character. Since God always acts according to his character, each name reflects both his loving actions towards us and the character traits he desires to imprint on us as we are transformed by his spirit. If we could go with the second slide. What are those names? Sylvia beautifully sang several of them during our offertory song. Adonai, God is master. We are his servants. Shalom, God is the source of peace, the peace that passes understanding. He is shepherd, healer, provider, and much more. God uses his names to communicate his very nature. They describe how he acts towards us and how he desires for us to act towards each other. As we honor his name, we bring ourselves into right relationship with him. We acknowledge that he is the creator. That name is Elohim. And we are mere creatures. Apart from him, we are but dust. But with God, or more precisely with the indwelling of his spirit, day by day we can be transformed. As Jehovah Jireh provides for us, we can provide for others. As Jehovah Rapha heals us, we can help to heal others. As Jehovah Shalom gives us peace, we can be peacemakers. Now, we bear the name of God's Son, Jesus, when we call ourselves Christians. And God's name is at the very core of the Great Commission. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. When Jesus commissioned us to make disciples of all nations, he implicitly included our own nation, America. And the obvious starting point is our own neighbors. You know, those people who are really hard to like, but we're told to love. But that's the subject of another commandment for another sermon. Um, What about when those neighbors are hard to love because they are different from me? Particularly when they support different teams in that American contact sport known as politics. That brings me to my second point relating to the title of this series, Among American Gods. Is there an American God? Is there something we value in our society or culture that deviates from the third commandment? I submit that one American God is politics. Too often, many of us confuse our Christian beliefs with our political views or our partisan labels. Or to put it humorously, referencing the Republican Party of which I was once an elected legislator, God is not spelled G-O-P. Jim Wallace, the founder of Sojourners, put it this way, and I quote, Abraham Lincoln had it right. Our task should not be to invoke the name of God by claiming God's blessing and endorsement for our policies and practices, saying in effect that God is on our side. Rather, Abraham Lincoln said we should pray and worry earnestly whether we are on God's side. Now, I recognize that I have just stepped into quicksand. No matter what I say in the rest of this sermon, I'm in danger of offending someone, maybe lots of someones. So being the careful judge, I will again look back to precedent none other than C.S. Lewis. So don't get upset with me. Get upset with old Jack, okay? In an essay entitled Meditation on the Third Commandment, Lewis took aim at the desire in England to create a Christian party like those in some other European nations. Lewis viewed that particular mixing of faith and politics as violating the spirit of the third commandment. In the words of the summary I read earlier, it was using God's name disconnected from his person, presence, and power. In America today, we don't call either political party by the name Christian. But how many partisans on both the right and the left wrap their political dogma in their religion? In effect, we claim our party is the Christian party. In so doing, we become estranged 
from our sisters and brothers in faith, we become righteous. Our preferred candidates become God's chosen leaders, no matter how flawed they may be. And they, meaning everyone who thinks or votes differently, are misguided or worse. Corey made a similar point in a newspaper column immediately after the 2016 election, and I quote, we have imagined the worst about one another. We cannot conceive how those people could have voted the way they did, supported who they supported. And because the majority of us surround ourselves only with those who think and believe as we do, we only know those people through the dark projections of cable news and social media. I'm going to rely on C.S. Lewis once again because he menses no words here. When one confuses partisan dogma with articles of faith, he or she, and I quote, implicitly accuses all Christians who don't agree of apostasy and betrayal. The temptation is claiming for our favorite opinions that degree of certainty and authority that really belongs only to our faith. The temptation is claiming for our favorite opinions that degree of certainty and authority that really belongs only to our faith. Here's an example from when I was a legislative assistant in the United States Congress in the 1980s. One passionate defender of the Second Amendment, the right to keep and bear arms, informed me that that constitutional right was actually firmly grounded in Scripture and endorsed by Jesus himself. How so? I asked rather incredulously. His response was because when Simon sliced off the ear of the Roman soldier, Jesus ordered him to put away his sword rather than throw it away. I'm, I'm not going to... I'm a little dull regarding the subtlety of Scripture, and that was a dear brother but his interpretation was lost upon me. So what are the takeaways? I need to move quickly away from the Second Amendment. Uh, I talked about quicksand, but now I'm, now I'm on the third rail. What are the takeaways? How should we then live? Here are three suggestions. You see, this is a three-part sermon after all. First, we should prayerfully and carefully let faith guide our positions rather than a political party's platform or, worse yet, social media or cable news. Scripture speaks to certain matters and not to others. Scripture speaks to certain matters and not to others. For example, no matter how carefully I look, I can't find any direct guidance about corporate tax rates in the Bible. But God does direct us hundreds of times to care for those who are poor. 
This imperative, in fact, was the very first thing Jesus said when he began his public ministry. People of faith, whether conservative or liberal, should be able to agree on the centrality of that imperative. Even when disagreeing, as we will, on the precise means to address it. Here's another example of letting one's faith guide one's positions rather than a political party's platform. When I served in the General Assembly, two of my colleagues were devout Roman Catholic believers. One was a liberal Democrat, the other a conservative Republican. They disagreed on many issues. Sometimes they disagreed on the time of day. But two issues they did agree upon were abortion, they both opposed it, and the death penalty. Again, they both opposed it. The liberal Democrat was criticized by many in his party for his votes against abortion. And the conservative Republican was criticized by many in his party for his votes against the death penalty. The takeaway is not that all people of faith share those positions. They don't. Rather, it is that these two men were guided by the tenets of their faith rather than the pressures of their partisans. My second suggestion. We must reject tribalism masquerading as partisan loyalty. In the early 1980s, I was chief of staff to one of the most conservative Republican congressmen. My closest friend was chief of staff to one of the most liberal Democrats. We remain friends to this day. We are from different tribes, so to speak, but we will spend eternity together. What binds us is infinitely stronger than what might separate us. This is one example of what Corey has referred to as the intentional formation of unpredictable relationships. The intentional formation of unpredictable relationships. Jesus models that for us. Roman centurions, tax collectors, Samaritans, even lepers. Jesus repeatedly formed unpredictable relationships. We should follow his example in the public square. According to the great moral philosopher, Bono. (laughs) Did you use U2 as well? All right. According to Bono, the left mocks the right. The right knows it's right. Two ugly traits. How far should we go to understand each other's points of view? Maybe the distance grace covered on the cross is a clue. My third suggestion. In the words of Stephen Covey, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. The main thing, according to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. I do glorify God when I love my neighbors as I love myself, even when they speak or vote differently than I do. I do not 
glorify God when I treat my neighbors with different opinions as enemies. Politics is important, but being God's hands and feet on this earth, bearing his name and his characteristics is infinitely more so. Politics is important, but being God's hands and feet on this earth, bearing his name and characteristics is infinitely more so. Let's return to Jesus' example. How often did he speak out directly about the government and its policies, the Roman government in Palestine at the time? Almost never. Why? Because he was afraid? Oh, no. Because such matters were not important? No. In fact, even a casual reading of Scripture shows that many political issues are near to God's heart, caring for the homeless and the hungry, redeeming the prisoner, affirming the dignity of every person since we are formed in God's image, and many others. But Jesus was about the business of transforming people, not reforming government. He was always about his father's business every day. For him, the main thing was to keep doing the main thing. And he calls us to do likewise. When we allow the Spirit to transform us and we love our neighbors in Jesus' name, those are the main things, we might reform government. We might reform government. But more importantly, we can change the world. In the century following Jesus' life, the philosopher Aristides of Athens observed that Jesus' followers were indeed transformed people, and they were indeed transforming the Roman world. Here's what Aristides wrote. Christians do not keep for themselves the goods entrusted to them. They do not covet what belongs to others. They show love to their neighbors. They do not do to another what they would not wish to have done to themselves. They speak gently to those who oppress them, and in this way they make them their friends. It has become their passion to do good to their enemies. If they see a traveling stranger, they bring him under their roof. They supply any poor man with the food he needs. And listen to this. They live in the awareness of their smallness. They live in the awareness of their smallness. Aristides was describing transformed people, and they were changing the world. Jesus' life and the dramatic transformation of his early followers brings us back to the character of God as expressed by his names. It brings us back to the deepest meaning of the third commandment. When the Ten Commandments were given to Moses and the infant Hebrew nation in the wilderness, God was expressing his righteousness to the descendants of the first Adam. The law starkly defined 
our separateness due to rebellion and sin, for we are all descendants of the first Adam. God was holy and unapproachable, so unapproachable, in fact, they would not even say or write his name. Rather than Yahweh, they used the letters Y-H-W-H. The visual representation of Yahweh is the burning bush from which Moses had to hide his face. But Jesus, the second Adam, transforms our relationship with God as he transforms us. What does he invite us to call the God of the universe? Not Yahweh, not Elohim, mighty creator, not Adonai, master and Lord. No, we are invited to call him Abba, loving father, daddy. Abba's image is not a burning bush. Rather, it is the loving father welcoming back the prodigal son. Through Jesus, we have been adopted as daughters and sons. May our prayer be that we will always honor our father's name as his devoted children. Let's pray. Abba, Father, as we speak your name with our lips, may we honor you with our lives. As Jesus' followers who bear his name when we are called Christians, may we carry the light of your peace to a world troubled by darkness and turmoil. By the transforming power of your spirit, may we love all of our neighbors as we love ourselves. May we live in the awareness of your greatness and of our smallness. In your holy name, amen.